So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into the sermon. Father, we're thankful that we have your holy word, your authoritative word, your inerrant, infallible, sufficient word for our lives. We know that it's through your word and your spirit that we're sanctified, that we can understand your word and know you and worship you and obey you and apply these things to our lives. May you, by your spirit now, grant us that understanding to illumine our minds, to renew our minds, to convict our hearts, to encourage us, to edify us, to know you more, that we may worship you more. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 8, verse, verses 25 to 40. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. I've titled this message, A Providential Encounter. A Providential Encounter. Last time we looked at verses 9 through 24 in chapter 8, at the spread of the greater power, the spread of the greater power. Luke mentioned and used Simon, Simon the magician, to show us the greater power of the gospel and the greater power of the Holy Spirit. He recounts the spread and the impact of the gospel in Samaria so that we would see the power of God at work in truly converting people, in true conversion. Simon was a man who practiced magic in Samaria who was astonishing the people so much so that they were calling him the great power of God. This was until Philip arrives, a true apostle of Christ, not a true apostle, a true messenger from Christ. He arrives in Samaria, begins proclaiming Christ to them, verse 5, chapter 8. But not just proclaiming Christ, he was also performing visible, public, miraculous, undeniable signs and wonders among them, verses 6 through 8 in chapter 8. And he does this in order to authenticate and validate his message. Even Simon the magician was amazed and is said to have believed. But Simon proved to be a false convert. 
He proved to be a false convert. He was still enslaved to the same passions he was enslaved to before his profession and even his baptism. When confronted and his sin was exposed, we find out that he doesn't repent. In fact, he demands and commands the apostles to pray for him and to do this and that for him, to grant him this power of the Spirit by purchasing it from them. His motives to believe and to be baptized were corrupt, as we saw. He didn't want the Spirit to be under the control of the Spirit and to yield his life to the Spirit and to submit to his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. He wanted the Spirit to manipulate and use it as a means for personal gain, to have monetary means from it, as well as to be seen as someone powerful and with authority, and even as one of the apostles. His motives to believe and be baptized were corrupt. Also, he became bitter when God did not give him what he wanted. Simon had the wrong view of himself. He had the wrong view of sin. He had the wrong view of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, he had the wrong view of salvation. It is possible for a person to profess faith in Christ and to be a false convert. In other words, to profess Christ, but not to possess Christ. And we learn about this in James. It is possible to assent to the facts of the faith, but to have no real personal trust and relationship with Christ. This would be a false and empty profession that is exposed, it's revealed by your heart and your life, by your actions over time. It will become exposed and revealed. Peter says to Simon in chapter 8, verse 21, he says, your heart is not right before God. Your heart is not right before God. For from the heart overflows the springs of life. Your heart exposes through your words, through your actions, through what you do, where you are spiritually. But though Simon did not repent, many from Samaria did because they were hearing and receiving the word of God. They believed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were also being baptized in obedience to Christ. And there was much rejoicing in that city. However, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them until the apostles Peter and John came from Jerusalem and laid their hands on them. And we looked at this last week a little bit. Why was the Spirit delayed in Samaria? And this will connect to what we're looking at today. Why was the Spirit delayed in Samaria? As the church is being established through the spread and advancement of the gospel, through the faithful witness of the apostles and the believers, there are unique instances and displays of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in order to demonstrate the inclusion of different groups of people other than the Jews and to show that they are all one in Christ and belong to one universal church. The book of Acts portrays the transitional ministry of the Holy Spirit, and there are four unique instances where the Spirit does something unique. Acts chapter 2, with the, on the day of Pentecost, they were speaking in tongues, these known languages that they haven't previously known. There was a visible, undeniable presence of the Spirit there on that day. Acts chapter 8, which we looked at last time, with the apostles coming, laying their hands, with the Spirit, having them receive the Spirit in Samaria after they heard the word. Acts chapter 10, which we'll look at in a couple weeks, and Acts chapter 19. These are unique, specific, and significant events in salvation and church history, and not the normal pattern we see of the New Testament church. So by delaying the Spirit's coming until Peter and John arrived, the apostles, God preserved the unity of the church. God preserved the unity of the church. The apostles needed to see for themselves and give firsthand testimony as reliable and authorized witnesses on behalf of the Jerusalem church that the Spirit had come upon the Samaritans 
through the laying on of their hands, that they truly believed the message. The apostles also came to authenticate Philip's ministry. And furthermore, the Samaritans needed to learn that they were subject to apostolic authority, and they were linked together with Jewish believers into one body. At each stage, when the gospel advanced over a major cultural or religious barrier, there was a special manifestation of the Spirit to show that there was no longer a difference between Jew, Acts chapter 2, Samaritan, Acts chapter 8, and Gentile, Acts chapter 10. They are all one in Christ. There's no longer hostility. There's no longer hatred. The love of Christ, the unconditional love of Christ, overpowers that. And this directly parallels the theme verse in chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. These different movements from place to place is also displaying a manifestation of a unique uh, ministry of the Spirit attached to that because it's including all people together in Christ into one body, the church. And as the people of God are scattered and dispersed like seed through persecution, from Jerusalem, we see that they went about preaching the word. They were evangelizing. We can't forget what initiated and advanced this work of God in Samaria. How did the gospel get to Samaria? It was through the martyrdom of Stephen, this faithful witness of Christ, and persecution. That was the catalyst that really launched global missions and got the gospel to Samaria, and as we'll see, also to the rest of the world. It was a stone that caused a ripple effect that would bring the gospel not only to Judea and Samaria, but to the rest of the world. And Philip says, goes to Samaria. After this persecution, this great persecution falls upon the church of, of Jerusalem and they're scattered like seed. Philip goes to Samaria to this despised people to proclaim to them Christ. This is a demonstration of the transforming power of the gospel that displays that the church is the first fruit of new creation. They have a new heart. They have a new life. They're a new humanity, a, a beacon of hope in this world. The gospel does unite all people together in Christ because of the love of Christ, because of the death of Christ, because of the gospel of Christ. And we see that God surrounds his people and moves his people to be in places where they need to be in order for those people around them to hear the gospel. And he may use persecution to do that. This was to demonstrate that the church is the institution, instrument of God, and authority of hope in this world during this time. To show that there is still hope for Israel, and not just for Israel, but also hope for the rest of the world, which includes the Samaritans, which includes the Gentile nations. God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for the nations, and he will fulfill his promise to build his church. The church thus far has faced external threats with the religious leaders in Sanhedrin, they faced internal threats with Ananias and Sapphira and distraction, disunity threats with the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews concerning their widows and how the apostles needed to focus on the primary ministry of prayer and the word. They didn't need to be distracted to do these other things. And so they delegated authority to these Hellenists, to these Hellenists who would care for their widows. So there were external threats, internal threats, distraction and disunity threats. And now there's this great persecution that the church in Jerusalem faces that leads to dispersion and further proclamation. And through all this, we see God working. 
God working to strengthen, to purify, to protect, to preserve, to unite, and build his church as the gospel continues to spread in advance. God has a heart for the nations, and he will build his church, and he does this one heart at a time. He does this one soul at a time. What is your salvation testimony? What is your salvation testimony? What is your testimony of God's grace in your life? Yes, we know God's grace in salvation. God chose us before the foundation of the world. He elected us. He called us to himself through the death and finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from the punishment of sin that we deserve. And the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts and gave us new life in Christ that we may be dead to sin and alive to righteousness and that we can obey him. We understand that God is sovereign over salvation. We understand his grace in that process. But sometimes we can downplay the significance of what took place. May we never take our salvation for granted and lose our joy in his everlasting love and his amazing grace towards us who are undeserving of it, this free gift. We can respond when people ask, what is your testimony? Well, it's, it's just simple. It's, it's boring. It's nothing special. And we've heard that. We might have even said that ourselves. Because we're imagining these crazy testimonies where people are addicted to drugs or homeless and God does this crazy work that's just noticeable. But every testimony of God's grace is unique and specific, intentional, personal, and special. That's because we don't see God's hand working in not just our own lives, but the lives of those around us to bring everything together according to his perfect plan and will to bring us to that moment of calling Jesus our Lord. We don't see that. We might look back later on and be able to connect some of these points, but that's just the amazing way that God's providence works and his sovereignty over all things works. We cannot take our salvation for granted. We must continue to find joy in it because God was working in so many different ways to bring us to himself. That's his love for us. Just a testimony of my own <clears throat> uh, from God's grace in my life. I, I try to just list a few things and see how they connect. I grew up swimming as a kid on a swim team. And so when it was time to go to high school, I already knew how to swim, so I'm going to join the swim team. It just made sense. And then on the swim team, there was this one Christian on that swim team. And it just happened that that one Christian, I didn't know he was a Christian, became my friend. And as I hung out with him more, he invited me to his church, his youth group. And the church I went to, the, the youth pastor there was happened to be friends with the, a pastor that I would meet later on in college. And so I was going to that youth group through this friend from swimming that was the only Christian on the team. I meet this youth pastor who says, okay, you're going to UC Santa Barbara. Go and check out these fellowship campuses and and get involved, get plugged in. So I do that. I happen to have roommates that were Korean, and this plays a part in it. Uh, I'm not Korean, but they were Korean, and they were going to this fellowship group that was for Korean Americans. Why would I go to that? I don't know. But I did because they were my roommates and they went and it was, they said it was good. So I go there 
and the overseeing leaders and pastors of that ministry, guess what? We're friends with my youth pastor when I first came to church with him from the friend that invited me to, <clears throat> to church with him. All of this happened. The leaders overseeing that campus fellowship group were pastors from TMS, the Master Seminary, which again has multiple connections. And there's so much more that's involved through different people at different times in different places coming together in God's providential way to bring me to the point of falling upon my knees and crying out to the Lord in repentance and faith. God works in so many crazy ways to work out his will in our lives. God was providentially working to bring all these things together at the exact time, at the exact place, at the exact season of life that I was in to grant me eternal life in that exact moment. And if you have a salvation testimony, God was working behind the scenes, doing multiple things through multiple people, not just your own life, to bring you to himself. And in these verses, Luke recounts the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch so that we would see God's providence. We would see God's providence in saving each soul and to show that we are all one in Christ. We are all one in Christ. And if you pay attention to the reading, there are references to an angel of the Lord, verse 26, if you look there, an angel of the Lord in verse 26, the spirit speaking to Philip in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord snatching Philip away in verse 39. And that's to highlight and make clear the fact that the initiative in this providential encounter is entirely of God. Just like in Acts 5.19, when the angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison doors to release the apostles and told them to go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. That was another act of God to release the apostles from prison so that they can continue to spread and advance the word, the message of this life, this, the message of Christ. And here we see another instance of God's providential intervention so that his gospel can continue to spread. Verses 25, 28, we'll first look at God's intervention and Philip's obedience. God's intervention and Philip's obedience. Verse 25 again, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. In verse 25, the they refers to the apostles Peter and John. Wherever they were and wherever they went, they would preach the gospel. They continued preaching the gospel to all the villages, to many of the villages of the Samaritans. But in verse 26, we see God's intervention, God intervening and directing Philip elsewhere. He doesn't continue on with the apostles back to Jerusalem or continuing to stay and have ministry in Samaria. But rather, God intervenes in verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. From Jerusalem to Gaza is around 50 miles going in the southwest direction. If I was Philip, I would be wondering why. Why would I go on this desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza? Why would I go down this dangerous, deserted desert road? There's fruitful ministry here in Samaria. 
other villages that I could preach to. The city is rejoicing. People are being saved. People are being baptized. They want to hear the word of God. You want me to leave here and go where? To a desert road where no one's at? And for us, that could be a job relocation. It could be being moved to a different branch or team within a company, going to school in a different place, moving into a different neighborhood, being kicked out of the university and meeting in another church in the afternoons. As we heard this morning, being relocated or displaced from our tea shop to a little kiosk where we can continue to, guess what, proclaim the gospel wherever we are, in whatever circumstance God has us in. And if we just think about that a little bit more, the being kicked out, not really kicked out, just out of the university and meeting in another church in the afternoons. Just think about it. Why? If we understand the providence of God, that God is sovereignly overseeing, working behind the scenes, doing exactly what he wants to do, which is good and right and perfect, we can trust him. We can obey him. We can know that he is faithful. We can continue to do what we have been called to do and what the church has been called to do right here. And this made me think about, well, we're using another church. This community, this neighborhood is is this church. It's for Truth Baptist to evangelize. It's for Truth Baptist to evangelize. But God does have us here. We do all live in different neighborhoods and work in different places, go to different schools. And wherever that is, we can be faithful to continue to do the work that he has called us to do and not just sit around and say, wait, when we get a a permanent place, then we will do these things. We must have this continuous obedience to the Lord, even when we don't understand maybe why we're here. But God has provided for us a place so that we can come week after week to be encouraged by one another and to hear from God's word and to fellowship and to continue to praise his name together. May we not lose sight of that and be content where we are because this is exactly where God has us. He moves people around, surrounds people at different times so that we can continue to be an impact to those people that he has for us to be an impact to so that they can hear the gospel. God is orchestrating here the exact place and time and circumstances for Philip to encounter this Ethiopian eunuch. And guess what? God is also orchestrating the exact place and time and circumstances for this Ethiopian eunuch to encounter Philip. It's necessary to note that today we don't have angels or messengers of God appearing to us with instructions for how to live our life or how to do ministry or where to go. But we do have God's completed revelation of himself to us that reveals knowledge of his will for us. And that is made known in God's word. His prescriptive will is given to us right here. What do we do with our lives? How do we obey you? What is your will for us? Obey the scriptures. Be faithful to the scriptures. We also know that God works through providence. 
if you're relocated, if you're displaced, if you're moved from here to there, whatever the reason, God's providence has moved you there. And so does Philip complain? Does he question the angel of the Lord? He doesn't. He simply obeys. He leaves behind fruitful ministry in Samaria. Think about that. He leaves behind fruitful ministry in Samaria and went down this desolate desert road to Gaza, not fully understanding why, only trusting that God knows and is in control. In verse 27, so he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Philip encounters an Ethiopian, which describes someone who is dark-skinned, who is also a eunuch, which is someone who is castrated, who is also a court official of Candace. And that's a proper name, not an official title like Pharaoh or Caesar. And he is in charge, it says, of the queen's treasure. He was trusted. And in the ancient world, slaves were often castrated as boys in order to be used as keepers of the harem or of the treasury. And so eunuchs were found to be trustworthy and loyal to their, to their rulers, to their leaders. And in this case, this Ethiopian eunuch was no threat to the queen, and he held this high position of being over all of her treasure. As a eunuch, he would not be fully welcomed into Judaism because of his physical blemish, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And so he could not fully participate in worship at the temple. He could visit the temple in Jerusalem, which it says he did, but he could never enter it. He would only have access to the court of the Gentiles. Eunuchs were also not allowed to become full proselytes to Judaism. They couldn't be circumcised or, or baptized or worship with the Jews. But the fact that he came to Jerusalem to worship, and what we see in the following verses, tells us that he was, he was earnestly seeking to understand the scriptures. He was seeking to understand the scriptures. He was a man searching for the truth. He may have been a, what was labeled as a God-fearer, but he didn't know the true Christ. He didn't know the true Christ. And this eunuch was from Ethiopia, which is known in the Bible as the land of Cush. And this doesn't correspond to present-day Ethiopia, if you're thinking of where Ethiopia is on the map. Uh, but this is an area south of Egypt, which is today part of northern Sudan. And as this Ethiopian eunuch was returning from Jerusalem, it says in verse 28, he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. He, it doesn't say how he re- acquired the book of the prophet Isaiah, But we know that it was the Lord that had placed in his hands a copy of the book of the prophet Isaiah, which he was reading at the exact moment that Philip was walking nearby on this deserted desert road. This is not a chance encounter. God intervened, and we see his hand of providence at work. We see God moving Philip, and Philip trusting God. Go down that desert road, and Philip obeys. We also see God was already sovereignly and providentially at work in preparing the eunuch's heart. He's already sovereignly and at work in preparing the eunuch's heart to receive the gospel. He went to Jerusalem to worship. He wanted to know the scriptures and understand the scriptures. His heart was softening. Not only do we see God's intervention and Philip's obedience, but secondly, we also see verses 29 to 38, God's intervention 
and Philip's opportunity. God's intervention and Philip's opportunity. 29 through 38. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Philip is presented with an opportunity to share about Christ, and he engages and embraces it. But we see as well that it was prompted and initiated by God. Verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And again we see Philip obeying. Philip obeyed. He ran up to the chariot, and this Chariot was most likely an ox-drawn wagon moving at not much more than a walking pace. This is not a high-speed, uh, super-fast chariot where he had to become Usain Bolt to catch up. This is an ox-drawn wagon. He can walk at the same pace. And so Philip was coming up to this chariot, and as he ran up to it, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And it was common back in the day to read the scriptures out loud. It helped with memorization, and it was just the way that they read. And he said, do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand what you're reading? There's no introduction. They've never met each other. Who's this random guy running, walking alongside this chariot saying, do you understand what you're reading? Probably would have been shocked. There's no introduction, no formal greeting. Hey, I'm Philip. I also love Isaiah the prophet, but rather, Philip just says, do you understand what you're reading? Interesting question, but an appropriate one and a fitting one as it turns out. Verse 31, he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, he was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before shear is silent so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. He was reading from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And this was a section of scripture that this Ethiopian eunuch needed explanation for and which would present the opportunity for Philip to preach about Christ, to make Christ known from the scriptures. He asked Philip in verse 34, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? In verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. This is what Jesus did as well with the two men who were on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. In Luke 24, verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
And he also appeared to other disciples post-resurrection. And it says in Luke 24, 45, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The disciples themselves needed guidance. And Christ had explained and opened their minds for them to understand the scriptures. They now, in turn, are explaining the scriptures in light of and on behalf of the ascended and exalted Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Philip is doing. The Ethiopian eunuch is asking a very important question. Who is Isaiah 53 speaking about? Is it speaking about the nation of Israel? Is it speaking about Isaiah himself? Or is it speaking about the promised Messiah? And Philip clearly explains to him that it is about the Messiah. But not only that, Isaiah 53 was only the beginning point. Beginning from this scripture, he preached Christ to him. Isaiah 53 was the beginning. He preached Jesus to him from the rest of the scriptures as well. He made Christ known. And Philip was ready. He was prepared. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Philip was faithful to evangelize and capitalize on this opportunity when asked a question. And we have to remember that the desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza was about 50 miles long. Philip had more time than to just explain Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, which speaks about the unjust suffering of the innocent servant, Jesus Christ. He would also have explained to him the servant's sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death and resurrection from the rest of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, if you just go back a couple of verses, says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Remember, this is speaking about the Messiah. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Isaiah 53, 4 and 6. And what does the, the, the last portion of Isaiah 53 say? Verses 10 to 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's speaking about the Messiah, our substitute, our sacrifice, our atonement, our propitiation, the only one who can pay the penalty for our sins on our behalf. And he was unjustly punished in our place. Philip would have also have explained to him, this good news is God's free offer of mercy. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is God's free offer of mercy, knowing what the suffering servant had accomplished upon the cross through his life, death, and resurrection. There is hope for all who would turn and repent and place their faith upon him. And this is a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. He would also have explained to this Ethiopian eunuch the prophecy that says eunuchs can come in and are included in the kingdom of God as well because of the unjust suffering of the innocent one, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8 says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. This was great news to this Ethiopian eunuch who is both a foreigner and a eunuch. But Philip didn't stop there. He continued to proclaim Christ to him. He also explained to him the need to repent and to believe and to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit as part of the new covenant church. And we see this in verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Isaiah doesn't speak about being baptized. So at some point along that desert road, after explaining, starting from Isaiah 53, who the Messiah is, what the Messiah has accomplished, how you come to know the Messiah, he also spoke about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the church and the need to be baptized in obedience to Christ as a follower of Christ, to proclaim your allegiance to him. While on on that desert road, this Ethiopian eunuch who was searching to know God came to a full understanding of the gospel and the true Christ. He wanted to display his allegiance and obedience to Christ, and so he wanted to be baptized. The first moment he had, as soon as he saw water, And you might notice some brackets around verse 37 in your Bibles. Maybe even a footnote there. Because verse 37 is not included in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. However, the content doesn't change what happened. It only clarifies it. If it wasn't there, the story would still be the same. The meaning would still be the same. The the Ethiopian eunuch would still have been truly converted. Verse 37 says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
He had a true understanding and knowledge of the true Christ. And so verse 38, the Ethiopian eunuch, based upon his profession of faith in the person and finished work of Christ, was baptized by Philip and is now part of the church. It doesn't matter that he was a eunuch. It doesn't matter that he was a foreigner. It doesn't matter that he's Ethiopian. He can now freely worship the Lord because of the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, bringing all people together in Christ as one, in unity, in love, in harmony. We should take note here of Philip's confidence. Philip's confidence and trust in the word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. He simply opened his mouth and preached Jesus from the scriptures. His confidence was in the word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit to work with the word of God being preached and proclaimed and heard. That compelled him to preach the word was his absolute confidence in the power of the word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think that we need to be clever or we need to have the right words. We just need to speak the truth from the scriptures, knowing that the spirit works with this power of the word to bring about understanding. We are to make Christ known from the scriptures and trust in the sovereignty of God. We are not in control of the outcome or of someone else's salvation. We can't make someone else believe. We can't force them to believe. We can't convert them. But we are called to faithfully proclaim the message that has the power to save. And the only message that has the power to save is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that is what we proclaim. That is what we make known, not our testimony, not how God has worked. Yes, that can uh, be a part of it, but the gospel is primary. We must proclaim Christ and what he has done and who Christ is. And all the more to those in our families who are lost and who we love the most. If I know that God saves people by those people hearing about Christ, and I know that I can't make people believe, then that would only make me desire to make every effort to do what I can do, which is to proclaim the good news and pray that they might be saved. That's all we can do. Proclaim the word, proclaim the gospel, rest in the sovereignty of God, trust in him. God saves, we proclaim. We've seen God's intervention and Philip's obedience. We've seen God's intervention and Philip's opportunity that resulted in the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch. Lastly, we'll look at verses 39 and 40, God's intervention and Philip's new opportunity or Philip's next opportunity. God is always working through his people. We are always to serve him and obey his will for us. Verses 39 and 40, God's intervention and Philip's new opportunity. When they came up out of the water, The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. 
Philip fulfilled God's will in that opportunity, and now he's presented with his next and new opportunity. Verse 39 says, The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. God is clearly intervening again, moving Philip to where he needs to be and to surround him with people he needs to be surrounded with so that they can hear the gospel. Philip was moved by the Spirit to a new place. And the word translated snatched means to seize or to take hold of or to be caught up as it is used in First Thessalonians 4 of the church, the people of God being caught up or raptured with Christ before the tribulation begins. Also means to carry off by force. And Philip in this unique, this unique and specific and particular instance was carried off out of sight of the eunuch to Azotus so that the eunuch no longer saw him. And from Gaza, Remember, he was on the desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And from Gaza now to Azotus, that would be around 20 miles north. And while the eunuch went, that's where Philip went. He was moved north 20 miles. And the eunuch continued on his way back to his hometown in Ethiopia, rejoicing. He's going south. And according to the church fathers, Irenaeus and Eusebius, though it's it's hard to verify and there's it's debatable, this Ethiopian eunuch became a missionary to the Ethiopians to preach what he had himself believed. He brought the good news into Africa. God saves people, places people where he wants them to be in order to make Christ known where they are. The Ethiopian eunuch on this road came to know Christ. He continued on his way home into Ethiopia and Africa. It's been said and reported that he was a missionary proclaiming Christ there. That's how the gospel got there. And we see Philip continuing to preach the gospel to other villages as he moves north from Azotus to Caesarea, which is along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about 60 miles, if that's just sticking next to the coast. We see Philip, he finds himself in another place. And it's not surprising what Philip does. Philip's known as Philip the Evangelist. So what does he do? He does what he always does. He does what God has called him to do. If you look back at chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word because of persecution. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, what was Philip doing? Preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. Verse 35, chapter 8, the eunuch asked him a question. What does Philip do? Philip opened his mouth. Beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And verse 40, as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel. He kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And again, that's 60 miles going north along the coast. We asked, why Caesarea? We had the the question, why this desert road answered? Because there's going to be an Ethiopian eunuch who had questions about the gospel in the exact place where the Messiah is revealed. So why Caesarea? Why does Philip move from Azotus and makes his way up there? Caesarea was a major port city, also a province of Rome. And this key port city leads to, guess what? the rest of the world. 
This is how the gospel will continue to spread and advance. From Caesarea, it will result in a church being established at Antioch, and it will continue to go north and west until it gets to Rome. And from there, it will spread to the rest of the world. And so it's going in both directions. Philip goes north, spreading the gospel to all the villages in Samaria, all the way to Caesarea. The Ethiopian eunuch goes south into northern Africa, spreading the good news. God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for the nations, and he will fulfill his promise to build his church, and he does this one soul at a time. Thus far in Acts, we've seen miraculous works of God saving multiple crowds at a time as they hear the gospel, as the Spirit falls upon them. There's mass conversions. And now Luke kind of shifts his focus from large crowds being saved and converted to individuals being saved and converted because it's really through God's providence working through one soul at a time. We see with this Ethiopian eunuch, we'll see with Saul, this great persecutor and murderer of Christians, we'll see it with Cornelius as well in Acts chapter 10. He continues to move and advance the gospel to all kinds of people, to place them into one body, the church. And as he's doing this, he's providentially preparing and working things out to bring this about in your life and in the life of those around you whom you may never know. And so wherever God has us and in whatever circumstances God has us in, again, we are to be faithful witnesses in how we live our lives with integrity and how we respond to our circumstances and ultimately in our proclamation of the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will provide all that is necessary wherever he sends you or wherever he has you because he is always with you. He's always with you. We learn here that God saves as well all kinds of people, not just Jews, not just Samaritans, but this Ethiopian eunuch, this foreigner. It doesn't matter male or female, young or old, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. It doesn't matter about your education level. It doesn't matter about how much money you make or your income. You're scared.